Please be seated. The reading today is from 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive of a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to to say to him, Go, wash yourselves seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, 
Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, I will bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. This is the word of the Lord. And it was very well read. Thank you very much. There may be one or two people here who don't know me, so my name is Milton Hayward, and I'm married to my wife Karen, who's out the back with the children. I've been a member of St Stephen's for 46 years, and Karen for 56 years, so um, we've been around a while. Two sons, two of the loveliest daughter-in-laws in the world, five grandchildren, and my life these days is basically doing what I'm told by any of the nine aforementioned persons. <clears throat> Shall we pray? For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant to us to live in harmony with one another so that together with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have before us one of the loveliest stories in the Bible. It's a story of redemption, telling of the salvation of a heathen man 850 years before Christ. To begin with, there is nothing in the account that we've just heard read that indicates that Naomi was in a search for God. On the surface, his quest was to seek a cure for his disease. But many accounts in the Bible use physical events, images and things to teach spiritual truths. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we are not told of a sinful man searching for God, but simply a man travelling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's all we are told. But the Jewish hearers would have understood the inference that Jesus was making. That since the days of Joshua, Jericho was known as the city of the curse. So Jesus paints a picture of a man heading downhill from the holy city to the city of the curse, who was beaten to an inch of his life and left dead to die. He was going in the wrong direction, towards destruction. And so in the symbols, we have a beautiful picture painted by the Lord Jesus of a lost soul. So we have with Naaman, the commander of the armies of Syria. In today's account, however, we are dealing with history and not a parable. It is the true record of a man's redemption. So firstly, a brief comment about Naaman. 
Our text tells us that Naaman was from Amran, which, by way of clarification, other texts translate as Syria. I will use Syria as it's more familiar to us. These ancient civilizations have left behind remarkable evidence that they were highly sophisticated. In Damascus, where Naaman lived, he regularly attended the temple of Baal Rimon. Temples like the Phoenician temple in Baalbek in Lebanon or the temple of Artemis in Ephesus were of immense proportions and common to heathen worship all over the world. But there are three things we learn about Naaman that help us to understand that he is portrayed to us as a lost soul. Firstly, he was a servant of a king who was an enemy of the nation and the God of Israel. The subject of being enemies of God is a major biblical theme. For example, in Psalm 110, many of us will know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As secondly, he had spent his life in the worship of the horrid false god Baal, known in Syria as Rimon, the god of thunder. He was accustomed to the extravagant displays of pagan worship, which included child sacrifice. In matters of spiritual truth, therefore, Naaman was lost in midnight darkness. And thirdly, he was a leper, He was victim to that disease that, from the inside, works its way outwards to disfigure and destroy. Leprosy, like yeast, in the Bible, is a picture of sin that completely defiles a person in the eyes of God. In the Old Testament, the leper was a symbol, a picture of living death. They were excluded from living amongst their brethren, And wherever they went, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, to alert everyone to their presence. Naaman was a great man and a courageous man, but no magician or wizard or physician or wise man in his nation could help him. His future was terribly bleak. He was an enemy of God, a heathen and a leper. So now a brief mention about the king in Israel. After the reign of David and Solomon, a civil war occurred rupturing the unity of the nation of Israel. Remaining faithful to David's hereditary line, the southern kingdom became known as Judah. But today's text takes place in the northern kingdom known as Israel. And from 925 to 721 B.C., a period of 200 years, Israel had 19 kings. Scripture records that every one of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The seventh king, Ahab, together with his wife Jezebel, exceeded all the kings in wickedness, and Ahab built a splendid temple to Baal in the city of Samaria. His wife Jezebel housed 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah and they dined every day at her table. They were truly wicked people. 
The prophets of Israel spoke of the false gods with exquisite and brutal sarcasm. Jeremiah declared they are as useless as a scarecrow in a cucumber patch. This was the state of affairs in Israel that Naaman was coming to, a nation so utterly bankrupt of divine truth that through the prophet Isaiah, God denounced the nation by saying, My name is cursed among the heathen because of you. Indeed, the king of Israel was just as pagan as the king in Syria. And now to the little Jewish girl. She was a little Jewish slave girl, a servant of Naaman's wife, and her lovely little voice comes to us over 3,000 years of time. She was a victim of her nation's unfaithfulness to God, having been taken captive in a military incursion, probably led by Naaman. Why Naaman would embark on such an extraordinary journey on nothing more than the words of a little child, we have no idea. But scripture is like that little child. It points everyone to the prophet who is in Israel. Salvation is from the Jew, said our Lord Jesus to the woman at the well. And this little Jewess did not point her master to Israel's king, to the great temple in Jerusalem, to the reigning high priest, or indeed to any other nation. She said in verse 3, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. It was to Naaman's eternal welfare that the little girl was Jewish. Why? Because the word of the Lord proceeds forth from Zion. No word of God ever came to us from Babylon, from Rome, from Athens, or from Egypt. Holy Scripture comes from the Jew. Salvation is its central message, and Christ is its grand design. And now to Naaman's journey. With the permission of his king, he journeyed some 250 kilometers into enemy territory with his impressive entourage. Protocol required that he come to the king and his palace, for that is the way that nations always do business. One has to imagine that for a man of such importance, three to five hundred servants and soldiers and possibly more accompanied him. The story now introduces us to the vanity of worldly power in matters of spiritual truth. This world, with all its wisdom and power and immense learning, has no answer to the lost man seeking redemption. It pays no heed to the state of a man's soul. We are meant to notice the extravagance of the gifts. 600 shekels of gold in today's language would equivalent be the equivalent of approximately 8 million New Zealand dollars because a shekel was a weight and not a value. We are meant to imagine the magnificent chariots and horses, the grand display, 
Today, it would be Air Force One and a fleet of limousines with all of the security men, translators, journalists and speechwriters. The King of Israel could not help Naaman. He was just as pagan. He represents the impotence of the world to save a lost soul. The King of Israel automatically assumed that the whole charade was an orchestrated effort to stir up hostility. All was suspicion, and the king was tearing his robes. Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure him of his leprosy? And in the midst of this confusion and in the face of the king's hostility, Naaman must have wondered if he had made a complete fool of himself. But now enters the prophet. The prophet was God's ambassador. And like ambassadors today who represent their nation and government, the prophets represented only God. They were no respecters of persons and they spoke God's word with God's authority. The kings hated them. And before his death, St. Stephen, in speaking to the Jewish leaders, accused them by saying, You are a stiff-necked people. Which of the prophets did not your ancestors persecute? Naaman had not seen the prophet as yet and did not know where to find him. What else was he to do but go home in shame and defeat? But Holy Scripture contains a beautiful promise. It says, And you shall seek me, and you shall find me, when you shall search for me with all of your heart, and I shall be found of you. For Naaman all appeared as failure, but the prophet knew Naaman's need, knew of his journey, and knew where he was. We must also notice that the prophet did not come to meet Naaman to introduce himself. Now the entire drama shifts from the king's palace to the prophet's humble house. Naaman was accustomed to protocol, to receiving honour and respect. He was a dignified man and people feared him. And when it came to religion, he was expecting high religious drama with a lot of hand-waving and gesticulating and calling upon his God. On Mount Carmel, the priests of Baal in Elijah's time yelled and raved from morning to dusk, cutting themselves with swords and lances, trying to entice their God to send fire from heaven, but all to no avail. Naaman had to learn that all this religious drama an exertion of heathen worship was a powerless, empty show of nonsense. He had to be disabused of all false notions and expectations. Now, for the first time, he was dealing with a true bona fide prophet of the almighty Jehovah. Things were done differently. The God of Israel was no respecter of social status. Naaman had to learn a divine truth. God was not impressed with medals, with uniforms and chariots and snorting 
war horses and large bags full of shekels of gold. No, as Isaiah said, this is the man to whom I will look. He that is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. No, Elisha did not come to meet Naaman. He added insult to injury and sent instead a messenger, an unworthy servant, with a message to the king. And the message read, Let Naaman come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So we learn that Naaman did not find Elisha, but Elisha found Naaman. The initiative is always with God, and he knows every heart that searches for him. The Lord Jesus did not come to meet us personally. He sent to us an unworthy servant to tell us the message of the gospel. Elisha said, Let Naaman come to me, but listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Naaman was led to the house of Elisha, and we see one of the most brilliant understatements in the Bible. It says, So Naaman came with horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. One has to imagine in their mind's eye this very large assembly of Syrians in all their pomp and circumstance parked out the front of a very humble cottage somewhere out in the bush beside the banks of the Jordan. Lord, our Lord Jesus was not found in a temple or a palace but in a humble home in Nazareth. Finally, Naaman has arrived at Elisha's house and this is where Naaman at last anticipates that the prophet would come out and put on a grand religious show. I thought, said Naaman, that for me he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the spot and cure my leprosy. Doesn't this sound like an American televangelist? But no, there will be no waving of arms or shouting. Elisha didn't even come out to greet his guest. He merely sent out his servant Gehazi, an unworthy servant, to tell him to bathe in the Jordan seven times. This was the dizzy limit. This was the red line, the end of Naaman's tolerance. It was now time to get angry because he had suffered enough of this lack of courtesy, the abuse of common respect. Surely he'd made an utter fool of himself by believing that little child. He could have bathed in 
Albana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, and saved himself all the trouble and avoided the impertinence of these people. To the world, the gospel is foolishness, but to those who take the prophet at his word, it is the power of God unto salvation. The best advice that Naaman ever received came from the mouth of his servants, first from the little girl and then for those who were with him. Father, they cried, if the prophet of Israel had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? All false religion requires sacrifice and exertion to try to please the gods with their favour What can be made of bathing in the Jordan seven times? Is seven a magic number? No, of course not. Scripture gives us no reason. Once, when our Lord Jesus was dealing with a blind man, he made mud from spit and rubbed it in the blind man's eyes. Why? We have no idea. To us, it seems weird. But the Lord Jesus knew that blind man intimately, just as Elisha knew Naaman. And there was something that made that mud and those seven times relevant to their needs. We don't know why, and we don't need to know why. Naaman bathed seven times, and on the seventh time, and not until the seventh time, according to the prophet's word, he was cured and his flesh became as pure as a newborn child. It was a truly wonderful miracle. But an even greater miracle had occurred. Finally, finally, and not until he had been healed, Elisha revealed himself, and Naaman meets him as indeed we are promised that one day we shall meet him and see him face to face. Naaman's first words were not, thank you for healing me, but of far greater significance. He said, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Naaman insisted on paying Elisha, but Elisha refused. As the Lord Lives whom I serve, said Elisha, I will accept nothing. Isaiah said, come and drink from the well of living water without price. The Apostle Paul said, for the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. All that is required is to listen and obey the voice of the prophet. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Naaman's flesh was completely restored and those of us who trust in Christ rejoice that in God's sight we, like Naaman, are washed clean and clothed with the garments of righteousness through faith. We are no longer enemies and aliens but children of God and heirs of his kingdom. The wonder and the splendor of what Christ has done for us on Calvary without price cannot be exaggerated. 
The text does not leave us with a man cured of leprosy, but a man who had come to a saving knowledge of the true God. Naaman could have lived a life in perfect health for a hundred years, even two hundred years. But what would it have profited him if in the end he perished in darkness? Our world pays no heed to the state of men's souls, but the divine physician, our Lord Jesus Christ, said, what would it profit a man were he to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so, to finish, although a converted man, he could not avoid the responsibility of accompanying his king into the house of Rimon when he returned home. It troubled Naaman's heart that he would be compromising his new faith by attending the heathen temple. He said to Elisha, But may the Lord now pardon your servant on this one account, that when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, may the Lord pardon your servant. Elisha knew that this was a circumstance of Naaman's life that could not be altered. Our Lord Jesus Christ knows our circumstances. He knows the multitudes of difficulties that people have all over the world to be faithful to him and sometimes in hateful and life-threatening situations. He the Lord Jesus Christ, knows when a sparrow falls. He has the hairs of our head numbered. He placed the rings around Saturn and he built the Milky Way. He not only has the power to save, but the power to keep us from falling. Elisha could not. Indeed, he would not change the circumstances of Naaman's life. He made no demands, no suggestions, and he imposed no laws. Naaman was safe in the hands of Elisha's God. And so they parted with that lovely little farewell phrase that would have set Naaman's heart at liberty and free from concern. Elisha simply said, Go in peace. And so, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, both at this time, now and forevermore. Amen.